Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. My call to confession is Proverbs 29, verse 10. Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. One has to look no further than Christ himself to see this proverb played out in real life. Heal the man with a withered hand, and immediately the religious leaders conspired to murder him. The religious leaders of his own nation were venomous towards him, though he was innocent of any crime, and though he did only good, and though he fulfilled every prophecy about their Messiah in the very scriptures in which they kissed in their synagogue. They used a typical worldly tactic of slandering Jesus and exhorting Pilate to crucify him by implying Jesus, that Jesus was an enemy of the state. Pilate feared him and therefore ordered his death. The just, however, seek the soul of the upright. The righteous love one another, and they seek one another's welfare. Saul tried to kill David, but Jonathan sought him out and protected him. Jezebel tried to kill God's prophets, but Obadiah hid 100 of them in caves and fed them. Herodias hated John the Baptist by condemning, for condemning her adultery and had him killed. But his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, sought out even his headless body for a proper burial. God's true ministers must be lovers of good men. Check your heart by this measure. Do you love the upright? Are your best friends pursuing God wholeheartedly? Do you crave their friendship and do you desire to serve them well? Do they know that you can, they can count on you for anything when hatred and persecution threatens them? This is a reminder of our need, own need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you will. Heavenly Father, we come again to hear you speak. Thank you for intervening and giving us your truth. Thank you for your clear message through creation, your clear message through your written word, and the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ, whose spirit indwells us, and enables us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hands to do the work. Give us faith, give us courage, give us understanding as we prepare to hear you speak now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it's a pleasure to be back again. Thank you when John started praying for patience after talking about preaching, I wasn't sure where he was going to go with that, but uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Yossarian looked at him soberly and tried another approach. Is Orr crazy? He sure is, Doc Danica said. 
Can you ground him? I sure can. But first he has to ask me to. That's part of the rule. Then why doesn't he ask you to? Because he's crazy, Doc Danica said. He has to be crazy to keep flying combat missions after all the close calls he's had. Sure, I can ground him, or, but first he has to ask me to. That's all he has to do to be grounded? That's all. Let him ask me. And then you can ground him, Yosarian asked? No, then I can't ground him. You mean there's a catch? Sure, there's a catch, Doc Nika replied. Catch 22. Anyone who wants to get out of combat duty isn't really crazy. There was only one catch, and that was catch 22, which specified that a concern for one's safety in the face of dangers that were real and immediate was the process of a rational mind. Orr was crazy and could be grounded. All he had to do was ask, and as soon as he did, he would no longer be crazy and would have to fly more missions. Or, or would be crazy to fly more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he had to fly the missions. If they flew them, he was crazy and didn't have to. But if he didn't want to, he was sane and had to. Yosarian was moved very deeply by the absolute simplicity of this clause of Catch-22 and let out a respectful whistle. That's some catch. That catch-22, he observed. It's the best there is, Doc Danica agreed. In Joseph Heller's novel, Catch-22, published in 1961, this paradox is presented as a trap that confined members of the United States Air Force. In logical terms, the catch was that by applying an exemption from highly dangerous bombing missions on the grounds of insanity, the applicant proved himself to be sane. After all, that's what any sane person would do. If anyone applied to fly, they would be considered insane. Either way, sane or insane, they were sent on missions. Sometimes we found ourselves in situations with no way out. We feel trapped. Have you ever heard yourself utter these despairing words, damned if you do and damned if you don't, the vicious circle, heads I win, tails you lose, I'm between a rock and a hard place. Well, it is actually, while these are all actually a misapplication of Catch-22 and that original phrase in its context, this is what we would call a Catch-22. However, we don't need to be trapped or feel despair. The account of the Red, uh, Red Sea crossing, as recorded in Exodus 14, provides hope for those times that seem hopeless. So let's take a look at this story and see why a catch-22 can really be the best there is. And as we open the story there, we, we remember that the Israelites had been 400 years in Egypt and had been in serious, abusive uh, circumstances as slaves in Egypt. And God, through the series of plagues and through the leadership of Moses and Aaron, was getting ready to lead Israel out of Egypt. Pharaoh had relented. They finally got him. God, God got him with the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh threw up his hands and said, I'd had enough. Miracle after miracle God had performed 
on behalf of the people. And he was leading them out of slavery. He was leading them out of the hand of the, the cruel hand of the Egyptians. And they were going to be set free. Free. Free at last. Free from oppression. Free from captivity. Free from bondage. They were setting out on a new adventure. And as they set out, God sent them down a particular path that seemed not to necessarily make the most sense. Exodus 13 tells us, gives some clarity, that if they had gone the direct route, they might run into stronger armies and strong countries, and it would have discouraged them. And so he sent them a different path. Um, so they did not have to go directly through Philistine country. He sent them a little about around the desert, and eventually he parks them right at the shore of the Red Sea. Hot, dry, barren wasteland. Not your ideal conditions when you think of an adventure. And to make it even more challenging... Pharaoh had decided, wait just a second, what was I thinking? I've just lost a major workforce, how am I going to build another pyramid, right? I was crazy to let these people go, and so he pursues them. They're on the shore of the Red Sea, no way that way. Coming behind them are the Egyptians. And you can just hear the conversation Of six million people, right? What's going on? Why is this happening? There's grumbling. There's complaining. There's questions about what's going to happen. The obstacle in front of them and behind them seemed way too difficult to overcome from their experience. And they became focused on the problem, right? And they they forgot what God had just recently Think of all that God had just recently done for them. They were focused on the immediate. How were they going to get across this ocean? They didn't have time to build boats. Who was not following their, their AAA trip tick or their GPS? You know, what happened to their GPS? Why did they end up here and not continue to go through? What are we going to do with these six million people? You can't just move on a dime and make a quick change. And there's three things that we want to see as far as lessons that we can learn. As we see how the people respond and how God works with his people here on these shores of the Red Sea. The first section is to, in verses 1 through 9, is that they need... To comprehend and trust God's sovereignty. We talk about it, right? We talk about the greatness of God and how awesome he is. And how wonderful and magnificent he is. And he's in control of everything. Until we get to my moment. Then apparently he's made a mistake. And so I have to begin to contrive and connive. What's it say here in verse 1? 14.1 The Lord spoke to Moses. How can you get any better than that? Direct conversation to Moses with directions on, here's what I want you to do. And back in 13, it said, God led the people around the desert 
toward the Red Sea. No one had missed the map. No one had misread the GPS. No one had made a wrong turn. This was God's defined plan for them. From their experience, it appeared that they were moving from the safe position to the treacherous position. They had left the path of sure escape and were asked to camp in a place of trap. So from their experience, from their scientific evaluation, from their empirical evidence, it did not seem to make sense. But we learned later on that part of this decision on God's part was to entice Pharaoh to come after him. Right? He chose, God directed his people into this situation so Pharaoh wouldn't give up easily. Pharaoh was hot on their trail. He wanted to get them. But had they gone directly into the land of the Philistines, Pharaoh wasn't going to follow them. He would have seen a dilemma there that he knew wasn't advantageous. God worked in Pharaoh's heart to continue his pride and his arrogance by putting his people in a position that um, exacerbated that. And Pharaoh would press on thinking this would be easy prey. This would be an easy victory. So God knows what he's doing. Even if the way he's leading does not seem to make sense or his timing seems to be off or the wait or the journey seems to be longer than we planned or the place that we are, the deserts or the mountaintops or the deep valleys are the last place we want to be, we can trust him. Always. He knows our way. He sees the big picture. He's given us the directive. He has our best. He has the best plan going. And though it may, so it may not have been what we had chosen. It may not be part of our strategic plan. It may not be part of our action plan. This is what God has planned. If we are here, this is what we, he has planned. And we can thank him for his sovereignty. And we can trust it. He cares for us and he's going to lead us. And that's the second. So not only does he know what he's doing, he's leading us along the way. It says, verse 2, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal, Zephron, and you shall camp before the sea. That was his directive. They weren't there by mistake. That's where they were supposed to be. And we're reminded from uh, back in, in Exodus 13, he was leading them by a pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. They were obeying God by following that. So God, God's not going to leave his people when he directs them clearly what to do. He's not going to leave us stranded to struggle to find our own way. He will lead us. He promises to. He's going to stay with us, right? That's, that's the promise that comes out in Deuteronomy and is, is again stated in Hebrews. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He's given us a word that's clear. He's given us his, our Holy Spirit that guides our days. He's with us. He provides wisdom. He provides direction. We never have to fear anything. We don't have to fear of being left on our own for a I don't have to sit around and contemplate and figure out by some mystical measure what God's will is. He is very clear. 
And if we are busy doing the things that he tells us to do, all those unsure matters will take care of themselves as we obey God. He goes ahead of us. He leads us. He walks with us. He guards our way from the front and behind. His word gives truth and life and shows us the way to walk in this world. So first, he knows what he's doing. Secondly, he's leading us along the way. And thirdly, we see here in verses 3 and 4, that the heart of the king is truly in his hand. In the most dire condition, right? For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that they will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. No matter what the situation, even if there's some abominable leader in place who's doing things that are ungodly, we know that that leader is there because God put him there. That is God's situation to work out what he is trying to work out. Right? It's never, it's never been a surprise to God. It's been his plan. All the way back to the fall in the garden. All the way to the life of Joseph as he entered into Egypt. Right? We just read about that. That wasn't some error. That was God's work. Paul talks about that. The crucifixion. How That's, that's got to be the worst plan ever of how to accomplish something from our mindset. Who would ever think of that plan? But that was God's design for his people and the redemption of them and their salvation. John Calvin commenting on this says, God, by choosing up, by closing up all the ways by which the Israelites might have escaped, now opens a course for his wonderful power. And by bringing them for one moment to despair, provided for the safety of his church through a long period of time. This final act then marvelously illustrated the grace of God so that the people, however ungrateful and disaffected they might be, should still acknowledge God is their deliverer. He brings them to the point of feeling trapped and despaired so that they will trust in him. So what's going wrong in your life? What bad situation are you in? As you trust, as you comprehend God's sovereignty, you will begin to see his plan. You need to trust. We need to trust his leading. So we need to trust God's sovereignty. And as we do that, we need to then consider God's perspective. We've talked about this a little bit in our, in our conversation about Elisha. But verses 10 through 18 begin to show us what God's plan is and how he's going to work things out. And oftentimes he uses obstacles. He uses those um, difficult, overwhelming situations. But to God, they're not obstacles. That's his opportunity to work out his plan. It's the opportunity for us to see God go to work. 
Verse 10, And Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marked after them, so that they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. They were in dire straits. They were in a tough situation, and from all human understanding, their end was imminent. They were going to either die or be taken back to Egypt. In fact, they took a vote and said, that's probably the better thing to do us to go voluntarily back to Egypt. Remember how good it was back there? And they, and they kind of use this reasoning time and again throughout their journey to, to the promised land. Oh, man, remember how good it was back in Egypt? Right? Uh, Steve Green wrote a song about that, right? So you want to go back to Egypt where it's safe and secure? He talks about eating nothing and making bricks with no straw and how horrible it was, but... When faced with a greater danger, it seemed very pleasant back in Egypt. Pharaoh was on his way with his army of chariots and trained standing army. There was no way out except that this was God's plan. And he will make a way where there seems to be no way out. The bigger the problem, the greater his ability to work through, the greater he's going to be shown through that problem. Things were looking bleak and dark for the Israelites, yet that was God's plan that those obstacles would be that 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 would be a difficult situation. And so when we are in that circumstance, we have an option. Right? We can look at the obstacles. We can look at the problems and stay focused on that and try to figure out how to do that. Or the Israelites can go back and trust what God had said, right? What does Moses say to them in verses 13 and 14? Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall Hold your peace. Now that's not new information. God had given them to that at the very beginning. Go and I will make sure that you are delivered. He had confidently told them and shown them time and again that he was going to fight for them, stand for them, perfect them. And yet when the problem came, the focus gets on the immediate. The focus gets on the problem. And the Israelites were naturally terrified, and they doubted, they questioned, they complained, they grumbled, and they panicked. I've gone down that road before. Have have any of you gone down that road? It's like, oh yeah, here we go. God's great, God's great. Was at church, reading the Word of God, prayed this morning. Boy, God is fantastic. Whoa! What just happened? Someone cut me off on the road. It, the work's not going the way it should. I got a news that I wasn't expecting. All of a sudden, my focus is woo right on that problem. And I begin doubting and questioning, complaining, grumbling. And I panic. I get those panic attacks. Yet God doesn't, at this point, just turn the Israelites over to the Egyptians. But he continues to work on their behalf. And he asks for their obedience and he asks 
for their trust. He keeps moving them forward to demonstrate that trust and obedience. So instead of just seeing the obstacles, we need to see God at work. Instead of focusing on the problem, we need to trust God. And also we need to know that prayer is important, but at some point we've got to stop praying and start going to work. Right? What's it say in verse 15? The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children to move forward. Right? Yeah, sure. Isn't that oftentimes the answer to things? What are you going to do? Anything? I'm praying about it. You've made a decision yet? Well, I'm, I'm praying about it. I'm going to see the doors open, the doors close. I'm praying about it. Right? And that's, we, we want, I don't want to be little prayer. Prayer is important. But sometimes I'm praying about it is the way to not make a decision and to be disobedient. And we have to understand that. Your, your cry is simple lack of trust in God. And God says, be still, know that I am God, and get moving. Trust what I told you to do. Instead of just sitting there, still waiting for another word from God, which he had already given, trust his initial word and move forward. There's that Benedictine order of monks model, right? Ora et labora. Pray and work. Those two work together. That's the way God, that's where we show our dependence on our God and we show our trust in God as we see those two work hand in hand. So as we get past the obstacles and we trust God in his work and we begin to obey him um, and move forward, he's going to work powerfully on our behalf. What happens in verse 16? Lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel will go on dry land through the midst of the sea. Well, there's a plan of escape I wasn't thinking about. The sea's going to part and we're going to walk through. Even if the sea does part, what's true about the bottom of the sea? You ever been to the bottom of the sea? I haven't been to the bottom of a deep blue sea, but I've been to the bottom of like shallow places. And oftentimes it's mucky. There's lots of weeds. And if I part in the sea, do you think all the fish are going to be left behind and I'll have to walk through the fish? Won't they get kind of squishy through my toes? I mean, this, I got six million people to move. I don't think walking through the sea after the waters are parted is really what the best thing is going to happen. But that's what God clearly told Moses to do. That one thing. Remember Adam and Eve? That one thing. Don't eat of that tree. God usually doesn't tell us to become world conquerors. He tells us to do one thing. And what's the principle? As we show responsibility, as we show obedience in the little things, the greater things become responsibilities for us as well. Do that one thing that God has told you to do. Be obedient to the work that God has clearly said, right? And then God's power will, will be amazing. His power is always amazing, but we'll see it clearly, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 
reminds us that's God's modus operandi. As we sit around from human mind and human evaluation and empirical evidence and how things work out, we have our schemes and our plans. And they're complex and they're complicated, and but boy, are they awesome. We can write books about them. We have technical manuals. We have textbooks, and we can teach classes on these things because they are amazing plans. And what did Paul write to the Corinthians, his first letter? The wisdom of man and the strength of man seems foolish. Or the, the wisdom of God and strength of God seems foolish to man. And God undoes it and appears to use the weak and foolish things to accomplish his purposes. So when he said, raise your staff and part the waters, he didn't say that, but he said that they would walk through on dry land. The waters were going to be parted, the obstacles were going to be removed, the, the land would become dry, and they would be able to walk through. God's power was going to go to work on behalf of the Israelites. Because, as verse 17 and 18 reminds us, it's not about us. It's about God. And indeed, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians and they will follow. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his armies, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And I have gained honor over, for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The obstacles are there. Our trust in God helps us overcome those. Our obedience begins to implement his power and his work. Because it's his glory that's at stake, not my safety. The Westminster Catechism reminds us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. When we find ourselves in precarious situations, we can know that God will do what is best for our good and his glory. He will never give us more than we can bear, and he will always provide, even if it is through death. Too often we miss out on God's glory because we are busy trying to save ourselves. Too often we miss out on God's handiwork, seeing God go to work because we are busy trying to save ourselves. That's God's job, to save us. That's the message of creation. That's the message of all the stories throughout the Bible. That's the message of the prophets. I will glorify myself and I will save my people. Too often we prefer safety over salvation. Glorify God and be saved. As Matthew Henry says, stand still. Think not to save yourselves either by fly, fighting or flying. Wait God's orders and observe them. Compose yourselves by confidence in God into peaceful thoughts of the great salvation God is about to work for you. If God brings his people into straits, he will find a way to bring them out. Does your life seem to be confusing and in upheaval? Great! God has you right where he wants you. And at that point, we need to trust him. Be still. Ask God to help you see the situation from his perspective. 
Because it is quite a view. So as we trust his sovereignty, as we consider God's perspective, then we will enjoy God's glory as the Israelites do here in the remaining verses. And the angel of the Lord who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went before them and stood behind them. God moved as the people began to move. God stands between his people and the enemy. We never fight alone. He fights for us and he guards us. God himself, the creator of everything we see around us, the sustainer of life, the determiner of eternal matters, is the one who fights for us, as we learned from Jeremiah. He's that dread warrior that is fighting on our behalf. That's how much he loves us and will protect us. He will guard us on all sides as needed. He will keep us in his care. But that does not mean we won't face the battles. It does not mean we will not suffer wounds or even death. But we know that he is in the midst of it. And even if death shall come, we know that eternal salvation, eternal life with our Heavenly Father is there. And what could be better than that? Is there anything better than being eternally with God? Too often, we think a length of life on earth is better than eternity with God. And as Paul said, it's not bad to be here. He'd rather be in heaven. But I'll be here as long as God... Do we see life here as that? That it's God having me here for a purpose. And when that purpose is done, he's going to take me to his eternal kingdom. That's a perspective that we see time and again in those who have been able to face situations. They didn't see their life on this earth as the highest value. But that God's glory and God's work was that, right? We, we see that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and we see that from Elisha again, that God is fighting for, our, for his people. He's working on their behalf. And he is and always has been a God of miracles. When Moses stretched out his rod, what happened? God told him to do it. When Moses did it, what happened? The waters parted. They were wall. The, the ground became dry. They walked through by faith. What happened to the Egyptians when they walked through? Without faith. It went back to normal. It became mucky. They got all, as it says, their chariot wheels got all gummed up. They couldn't move. And they said, oh no! We knew their God was going to work for them and we fell again for the trap. And they said, let's turn around, right? And they started to head back and then God brings the water through Moses, stretch out the rod again, and he brings the waters back over the Egyptians. And what happened? What God had said, right? You will see, you will see them no more. Well, they did see him. What? They saw their bodies wash up on the shores as they reached the other side of safety. The same God who divided the Red Sea, the same God who overcame the Egyptian enemy, 
the same God who has saved his people since the time of creation through the cross continues to do that today. God is in the business of performing miracles and he does it on behalf of his people to his glory. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because the truth of the matter is since it's all about God's glory, all people will fear God, whether in unbelief or belief. That was in our um, reading today, uh, or our, our catechism, right? No, our, which we, our reading in Romans. Right? Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul reminds us in Philippians, that's why God has exalted him. All people fear God. Fear is what we're looking for when we talk about God. And, and the, but there's a reverent fear of faith and there's an arrogant fear of unbelief. Only those who fear by faith in God's promises will enjoy His blessing. God's plans will seem ridiculous and trivial when compared to the, uh, man's deceitful schemes. God's approach to resolution is contrary to man's approach because the natural man is in, is in open rebellion against God. We see that from Genesis 1 and Romans 1. God clearly declares himself and man says, I don't think that's the way it is. Here's the way we need to understand it. When people are able to stop glorifying themselves through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, then they are able to bask in the glory of God and enjoy what was previously seen as foolish and disgusting. John Calvin says, Most clearly, does it appear that the glory of God whilst it enlightens the faithful overshadows the unbelievers, on the other hand, with darkness? No wonder, then, if nowadays the brightness of the gospel should blind the reprobate. But we should ask of God to make us able to behold His glory. Do you enjoy God? Is there a joy in your life that is not simply based on your current situation or circumstances? The story of the Red Sea tells us, reminds us to be still, know that He is God, glorify Him, and you will enjoy Him. Joseph Heller's Catch-22 continues in this way. Yosarian strode away, cursing Catch-22 vehemently, even though he knew there was no such thing. Catch-22 did not exist. He was positive of that, but it made no difference. What did matter was that everyone thought it, thought it existed. And that was much worse. For there was no object or text to ridicule or refute, to accuse, criticize, attack, amend, hate, revile, spit at, rip up to shreds, trample upon, or burn up. Likewise, in reality, there's no bad situation for believers. It's a lie created by the father of lies. There's no dilemma. There's no contradiction. 
There's no trap and no, no way of escape. Certainly there are tough situations. We may be facing our own Red Sea crossing this very moment. Maybe we have some tough situations at the job, decisions that have to be made. Maybe there's a big decision in life. Maybe there's some relationship concerns or, or plans that aren't working out the way you, you thought they were going to work out. Maybe the, this, is, this is usually where a, a lot of times it happens, finances. Everything's good until the finances don't come through. Then it's like, all, all bets off. I've got, to do, I've got to put a plan together. Right? I, I know God said this, but I've got, to, I've got to lie, steal, cheat, fix things because I need the money. Right? So for, maybe it's a financial thing. See, that the enemy is a roaring lion who's hot on our trail. He's lurking close. He's whispering lies. He's telling us that there's going to be defeat. He's working to devour us and trip us up. And the obstacles that loom before us are huge. They are too difficult to overcome. My experience has proven that the last time I tried this, man, it didn't work out well. My experience says this. I think this, right? Is that, if that's what we hear ourselves saying as we are contemplating what to do, we're walking down the wrong road. We're seeking the road of safety, not the road of salvation. We want to turn back. We want to give up. We find ourselves questioning God and doubting His care and love for us. We must remember that His plans... For our lives will never be thwarted by anybody's, by any enemy's attacks. Though it may seem like we're losing or the enemy is winning at times, they do not have the control. God does. God is sovereign, so we need to trust his sovereignty. We need to consider his perspective, and we need to enjoy his glory. Embrace your catch 22. Find that circumstance, that situation that seems inescapable as the moment that God is doing his best. As we embrace our catch 22, it truly is the best there is. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Oh God, because without you, we are not able to please you or do anything. Mercifully grant that your Holy Spirit may in all things direct and rule our hearts through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And as we continue to pray. Psalm 140 says, Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. One of the themes we find in Scripture is God's deliverance of His people from violence. Violence is unjust brutality. We saw this in the Red Sea. God protected His people. The Lord, see, I'm sorry, the Lord Jesus died at the hands of violent men, and when He arose, He was delivered from the hands of violent men. This does not require pacifism, 
In other words, disputes should be settled by all peaceful means. But God's warriors are not described as violent men. Now this meal is a commemoration of the violent death that Jesus suffered on our behalf. This is his body and his blood. The body and blood of one who was murdered. The murder was conducted and carried out by self-righteous, pious men who made sure everything was recorded properly, but it was still murder. When Judas returned the money, they made sure the money was put back in the proper account. It was still a premeditated murder of an innocent man. When we partake of this meal by faith, we are partaking of all that Christ did on our behalf. One of the things he did was suffer at the hands of a violent, violent men, doing so in a way that put their violent and bloodthirsty ways to death forever. By allowing their violence to kill him, he killed their violence. By partaking of this bread and wine, we are identifying with that victory by faith. This is why this should be a table of love, of communion, of fellowship. In fact, why it must be so. At this meal, we are overtaking that God-forsaken violence of what God-forsaken violence thought it would be and could be. But Christ is risen, and love has conquered this violence. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.